My name is Bethany, um, and if this is your first time she said she saw new faces, I sometimes can't identify what's a new face and what's not. For those of you that know, we have a, a large portion of people that travel through and come and go, but if it is your first time here, uh, welcome, and you probably picked a really great Sunday to come. Um, because if you've been here for six years, like some, I guess Will's been, actually Will started the first 40 days with us. Um, but I'm really glad. That's crazy. First 40 days when we launched the House of Prayer, uh, Will was there. Had no intention of ever moving to Boston and being a part, but he's here. <laughs> um, but anyhow, really what we're going to be discussing today is, number one, it's very foundational for who we are as a people, and yes, if you're kind of like, okay, J-Hop, why do they call themselves a house of prayer? Why don't they kind of have a generic church name? Is a house of prayer a church? Really, all of those things will be answered through scripture for you. Um, but more than understanding house of prayer, really what I want us to understand today is the role of intercession in scripture. And most of you, if I actually, let everybody in the room say, I am an intercessor. I am an intercessor. Some of you actually are like, what is an intercessor? Like, that word is foreign to you. It's, it's, even if you've heard it, it's abstract. But for some of you, you may have heard the word, and you have, like, an image of a really weird lady with a tamarind and an Israeli shawl on her shoulder. I shouldn't have called her weird. I'm so sorry if you're in this room, and that's you. But it's just not my expression. So it's, well, we won't say weird. We'll say a different expression. So no worries, you can bring your tambourine in Israeli He goes to bring your tambourine. The room is too small, it'll just mess with the overall sound. So but anyhow, we all have these understandings of what intercession is, or maybe we don't have an understanding at all. But really what we'll see in scripture today is clearly it is not that many of us grew up like in the if you're in the charismatic church, you grew up thinking that uh, intercession was a calling. Or a gift that rested upon certain people. I can remember, actually, it was out in Michigan, the youth pastors that were pastoring the church that I went out to when I was 18 years old. I can remember sitting in their office and kind of going over what my job descriptions would be and what I'd be doing. And I remember the husband and wife looking at each other going, she's an intercessor. And I remember going, what in the who is that? <laughs> like, I was just was like, oh, darn, they just labeled me something that I don't know I want to be labeled. Um, so they could definitely identify something that the Lord, a grace that he was going to be leading me in, but I wasn't aware of. So I clearly want to say to you, if, if this message on intercession, you're like, I am not an intercessor, I'm going to kind of tune out right now. We're going to go through scripture and the understanding that if you want to be like Jesus, he was the great intercessor. And that in order to be like Jesus, the more we become more like him, the more we actually embody his heart and his passion and even his function. Um, so we're going to look at that. But number one, the understanding of what is the house of prayer. You obviously are in a building called the Justice House of Prayer. We launched March 1st through April 9th of 2006. We had 40 days of prayer and fasting. I had no intention or even clarity of what would follow that. I just knew I was seeking the Lord for the city of Boston, and let's see what comes after. Um, but for those of you that aren't aware, in Scripture, really, house of prayer is not a new trend. If you kind of heard some of the older, like, pastoral figures in your life or even in movements say, oh, there's, like, a new trend, it's house of prayer, it's a fad, it's a phase, it's all the church. It is the church. But you want to understand what the house of prayer is? Is number one, biblically, in Isaiah chapter 56, is actually where it was prophesied, my house, meaning the declaration, what he calls his house, what he 
as his own, my house, if it's truly to be my house, he says it will be a house of prayer for all nations. And number one, it's even the understanding that it's not just a house of prayer where we necessarily come and get our own little Jesus fix and we come to encounter the Lord and receive from him, which obviously that is first and foremost. You ain't praying for nobody else unless you first have your, your own soul converted and you've encountered Christ. So obviously first it's from the place of encountering Christ. But he says, for all nations. It's on behalf of a people. And then you actually find in the New Testament, Jesus himself is quoting Isaiah. And it's actually in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13. Most of you are familiar with this passage of scripture. When basically Jesus comes into the temple... This is when he rebukes the money changers, and this is where he declares, my house shall be called the house of prayer. He's actually quoting out of Isaiah, Jesus is. And the extraordinary thing about the life of Jesus, if you study the life of Jesus, is in John 2, 15, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the very beginning of his public ministry, John 2, 15, is actually, there's two different accounts of him coming and cleansing the temple. It's not all one story. In John 2.15, he comes into the temple with a whip. I mean, he is enraged, and there is anger manifesting from Jesus, but it's because of, he says, zeal for my house has consumed me. He was passionate for his house, that it would function in, in the first priority that it was set and intended for. And then you actually find in Matthew, it's a completely separate, now this is the ending of Jesus's life. This is the ending of his public ministry. So you actually find at the beginning of his life and then at the end of his life, two times he comes into the temple really with fury and with anger and indignation and righteous zeal. That's what he comes in speaking and declaring what the purpose of his house is to be. And he declares it to be a house of prayer. And see, many times we in America, that the house of God has become many things. It's become uh, an avenue sometimes for men and women that have, feel like they have a call to ministry. That in order for them to receive tithes and offerings, they get funded because of the church. Just, just for clarity's sake, Daryl and I are not funded by any of these tithes and offerings. Thank God. God has provided us a, a source a completely outside of, of this physical body that s supplies for us so that we are able to preach the word of the Lord with no concern or fear of man or attendance if we grow or don't grow, just being obedient simply to the Lord, that we're not dependent upon tithes and offerings. But honestly, I mean, I know that that's probably offensive and almost shocking to think, but really it's that place of based upon the number of butts that are in the seats that are tithing, the pastor gets paid. So it's an occupation for some. In many situations, it actually has become a, a platform for preaching and articulating the word of God, but that has become the primary function of the church. Most of us, when we think about the church, it's a place where we gather to hear the preaching of the word. We don't think about it in the Old and New Testament sense of a place where we gather as a body of believers to worship and pray and seek the Lord. And from the place of prayer... There's the preaching of the word, there's compassion, there's evangelism, there's missions, there's the outgrowth, there's campus ministry. It's all from the place that the, the, the womb of prayer is where creativity is birthed. And everything comes from that place. So that's what we find is Jesus' life. That in the very, very beginning and the end of his life, that it was zeal for the house of the Lord and the declaration that my house shall be called the house of prayer. And this is what you need to understand, is it is not a fad that is fading. Really what it is, it's actually being restored in our generation. Amen. 
And it was prophesied in Amos. It was said, in the last days, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. For those of you that aren't familiar, we're going to take like two seconds and go through it very, very quickly. The tabernacle of David was actually the first reality of night and day prayer. It was the first day that a first place and, and, and understanding and expression of continual worship and continual prayer happening upon the earth was the tabernacle of David. And now think about this way. For those of you that may travel in and through the house of prayer, you've probably heard us pray Psalm 132. It's a passage that we will frequently pray. And it's really, it's the vow of David's life. It's, it's where David is actually saying, which I know this is going to sound very extreme and shocking, and obviously he did close his eyes and he did sleep and he did those things, but he was, he was making a declaration of his resolve. He said, I will not give sleep to my eyes, nor will I slumber until I've built a resting place for the Lord. He said, I will not go up to the chamber of my house until I have built a house for the Lord. What he was saying is, I will not seek, number one, my own physical comfort or my own physical gain. I will not even seek the building of my own house while the house of the Lord lays in ruins and is neglected. So this was the vow of David's life. And we actually see that, obviously, what David began, Solomon actually consecrated and it was for the fulfillment of night and day prayer that was happening in the earth. Extraordinary, hundreds of singers and musicians and ministering before the Lord. So you actually find, and I'll give it to you really quick, so you find David is actually the first person that instituted, so not a new fad, not a new fad at all. Psalmist David was the first one on the block to institute it. Um, Psalmist David and then um, Joash, which actually the Psalmist David is who began pioneering it, but it was Solomon in 1010 BC. And then Joash, so you actually find... Um, after that time of David, is there were six times that night and day prayer was reinstituted and restored just in the Old Testament alone. Six times that different leaders and, and people began to get a glimpse and an understanding of how the body of Christ was to function. And the extraordinary thing is that if you study Old Testament history, under all of these rulers, when night and day prayer was reinstituted and restored, you actually find extraordinary blessing and favor that would come upon Israel. You actually find, as far as even their military, the continual victories that they experience, you, just, you find this place of really an open heaven that they are experiencing because they're operating in right relationship. Instead of us, in which we're all aware of, instead of instituting something that is man-made the way that we want to do it and according to our own wisdom and strategy, it was according to the wisdom of God. And operating in the wisdom of God invoked the blessing of God. So Joash in 853 BC, and then Hezekiah in 726 BC, Josiah in 635 BC, Zerubbabel in 538 BC, and then finally Nehemiah. And in 446 BC, these were all leaders that instituted night and day prayer. Then obviously you have the window in the New Testament where we actually are looking at and will continue to look at where Jesus was coming in with zeal, basically declaring over his house, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That is the primary function of the house of God. And then we won't go into it all today, but historically throughout history, and I'm sure many of you guys have actually heard uh, of, you know, the desert fathers, those that went out to the desert and actually instituted night and day prayer, the cloisters. Those, there was movements and people groups that would get a glimpse of biblical understanding and say, this is how we were intended to function. And they would grab a hold of that reality. So it actually was all throughout contemporary history as well. 
But what we actually find scripturally, I want to look at two passages of scripture um, initially, is we find God's cry, as I even said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations on behalf of all people. We find God's cry for an intercessor. That it's his desire, his passion, and what he's seeking. Isaiah 59, 16 says, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought forth salvation and his own righteousness, it sustained him. And then many of you are probably familiar with Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, which says, So I sought for a man among them who might make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I might not destroy it. But I found none. These are both two instances where it's the heart of God calling and beckoning and looking for an intercessor. Then what we find in the New Testament is we find Jesus, that he is the great intercessor. Romans 8, 34 says, who is he who condemns? It, it is Christ who died. And for the, furthermore, it is all, he is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who all, ever lives to make intercession for us. That's the... That's the definition of Jesus. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Isn't it extraordinary, even if you're, you don't have a mother or a father or anybody else praying for you, that Jesus Christ himself, he makes it his vocation to pray for you. That in the darkest valley of your life, if it feels like everything else is against you, Jesus is making intercession on your behalf. This really speaks profoundly because, you know, you can speak about the love of God. God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. If you really want to get a revelation of Jesus' heart towards mankind, number one, him coming and taking upon flesh, coming in flesh. I mean, that, just so you know, in, in all reality, what Jesus did was an act of intercession. What he did is he actually partook of our sin. He became one with who we are and on our behalf. He stood in our place. He came and took upon flesh so that we might be forgiven of our sins. The greatest act of intercession that's, that's ever been done. And then Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he, he always lives to make intercession for us. This place of Jesus making intercession for us. Then we also find the role of the Holy Spirit. It's also said of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as, as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So we find the model of Jesus and we find the Holy Spirit. This place of intercession, that it's actually the vocation of their life that they're praying on our behalf. So for any of us that kind of think, well, I'm not an intercessor. This is actually the place that, we, that when we grow in relationship with Jesus, that we begin to join in his ministry and in partnership with him. How many of you guys, I'm going to give you just a couple of Old Testament and New Testament models and the understanding of, of intercession. Let's look at the life of Moses, just very, very briefly. If for those of you that are familiar with Moses, he was in a palace, could have stayed there very comfortably, lived a life of comfort and ease, but Moses left the palace and he was numbered amongst the slaves. He accompanied them through the wilderness. And then you actually find in Exodus 32, 32, this is actually where Moses was making intercession on behalf of the Israelites. And he goes so far to say to God, yet now, 
If you will, for, if you, sorry, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which, which I am written in. He's actually so going to the extent of saying, forgive them of their sins. But if you're not going to forgive them of their sins, then actually I want to be numbered amongst them. And blot me out of your book. That place of identification with those. He was interceding before God on behalf of them. Making his plea as a friend of God. Saying forgive them. And if you're not going to, you might as just blot me out. That is an extraordinary posture of intercession. And then you find, um, I'm actually going to read to you guys. How many of you are familiar uh, with Reese Howells? I don't know if anybody's ever read this book before. I highly, highly recommend it. Not just once, not just twice, but as a read for the rest of your life <laughs> to grow in greater understanding of consecration and surrender to the Holy Spirit. But this is what Reese Howells actually says. It says, this is the intercessor in action. When the Holy Ghost really lives his life in a chosen vessel, there is no limit to the extreme to which he will take him in his passion to warn and save the lost. Isaiah, the aristocrat had to go naked and barefooted for three years as a warning to Israel. We can hardly, hardly credit such things. Hosea had to marry a harlot to show his people that the heavenly husband was willing to take back his adulterous bride. Jeremiah was not allowed to marry as a warning to Israel against the terrors and tragedies of captivity. Ezekiel was not allowed to shed one tear for the death of his wife the desire of his eyes. And so the list might be continued. Every greatly used instrument of God has been, in, a, in some measure, an intercessor. Wesley was for backsliding in England. Booth for the downcast and the, the down and out. Hudson Taylor was for China. C.T. Studd for the unevangelized world. That these were people that gave their life in the place of prayer for a greater purpose and for the fulfillment of God's purpose upon the earth. So you actually find, and actually I didn't go into it, but he goes on further to talk about Paul, the life of Paul, that he became a bondservant so that the, the gospel would be preached. It was so that, that salvation could come to the Gentile, that Paul was giving his life, and over and over we see that, that role of intercession. But what we're going to look more closely at is actually a model of intercession that's found in Luke eleven five through 8. So if you want to turn there with me. Some of you may be familiar with this parable in Luke 11. Um, we're going to start in verse 5, but even really before we focus on verse 5, um, what we actually see at the beginning of this chapter, in the beginning of 11, is um, now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased that one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, and we are all familiar with the Our Father, which we really could look at a mo as a model for prayer and like dissect it. But number one, just understanding that the disciples actually came to him asking, teach us how to pray. They had seen Jesus preach. They've seen his wisdom in teaching. They had seen miracles. They had seen as far as the operation of the Holy Spirit in Jesus's life. And their request of him was, teach us how to pray. I honestly believe that as the church, if that was the one thing that we asked of Jesus, I mean, oftentimes we take the posture of, God, give me miracles. 
I want to do miracles and signs and wonders. Or we even pray, God, put authority upon the preaching of the gospel. When I preach, let me... You know, oftentimes we pray for the Lord to do a lot of things in us, through us, for us. But probably the greatest gift he could ever give us is teach us how to pray. If he would teach us how to pray, and if that would be our posture of desiring that above all else, what would be the fruit of that in our lives? It probably would change very, 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 very many things. It would probably alter the course and the destiny of our life. I oftentimes think that people get to be like 50 years old, 60 years old, and it's at that point in their life when they've let go of some of their ambition, when they've let go of some of their striving, when they've let go of some of what they've defined success and life and all of those kind of images of what we all want and think that we want. I think it's at that point that many people begin to look back upon their life and almost begin to more clearly identify what it is they were created for. And almost in some sense, a a window that was missed because we were distracted by so many other things. But if we ask first and foremost, teach me how to pray. Teach, not give me comfort. Give me stability. Give me the desires of my heart. Make me successful. Make me famous. Teach me how to pray. Not, I need a new job. I need a new spouse. (laughs) But honestly, in every... Not that I do. Mine is amazing. Corey knows. She's in my house day in and day out. He's like, I actually... One pastor was over our house for dinner one time, and he was asking about... Do you know this? Anybody know this story? Uh, They were asking, like, about ministry. And, you know, you're telling them, like, the highs and the lows and what goes on and all the different... And then they said, well, tell tell us about your marriage. Tell us... And, like, we just kind of stopped and looked at him, and I just said, well, he's like a dream come true. That's like, because I literally stopped for a second, and I was like, you know, I have a praying husband. At the end of the day, it's the greatest gift you could ever have, ladies. If I mean, forget, I mean, I'm not saying you don't need money to live, but forget all of the other things that you're, you kind of think are the, the priority lists, and provide at the top a praying man. Your life will be okay. (laughs) No matter what. (laughs) So anyway. (laughs) But teach us how to pray. I want to challenge us that that would be the supreme request of our life. Teach me how to pray. And this was actually the posture that we saw the disciples taking. Was teach me how to pray. So they come to Jesus asking, teach us how to pray. Jesus gives them the model that we're all aware of. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's a little plug for day and night prayer. As earth as, as on earth as it is in heaven. On earth. If you're praying for the will of God upon earth, as it is in heaven, what does the will of God in heaven look like? What it is in heaven is there's unceasing worship, unceasing adoration. There is union with the heart of God. There is no separation. You know, oftentimes we kind of classify. I do my hour of worship in the morning. I read the word and then I move on about my day. We like separate secular and sacred. That somehow I'm going to meet with the Lord. I'm going to commune with him. And then I'm going to go do my classes. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do my, cook my free meals for my family. Then I'm going to shop. And I'm going to, whereas on earth as it is in heaven is continual worship. It's never ceasing. I actually love what Alan Hood says. You know, basically, we took a little bit of time here 
to go through the understanding of night and day prayer and house of prayer and where it is biblically and how it's not a new trend. Alan Hood actually says that if you have seen him, if you have had a glimpse of Jesus, the only appropriate response is night and day worship and prayer. Like you no longer have to wrap your mind around it. Like, okay, Bethany, give me the clear systematic theology of why would you build a house of prayer? I'm not getting it. Is it clearly there? Are you sure that it is provable in the word of God by any doubt or, or stretch the imagination? You can throw all that out the door. If you have had one glimpse of Jesus Christ, of his beauty, his splendor, his majesty, your heart cries worthy. That there is not too much of an extravagant response that could be given. That we could worship all of our days, that you could seek him every moment of your existence and never grow bored. See, ultimately what it speaks of when we don't understand worship and prayer, really what it speaks to is our dull heart. I mean, we are dull. Like, we, we, we have not seen who he is. When we can grow bored, like, even in the word of God, you know when your heart is alive in love for Jesus, because when you have the thought of, I get to go read the word. When you have that thought of, I have an hour and this is my time with the Lord, instead of thinking, holy smokers, hope I can make it through it. Or even, I wonder if there's something else I can get busy on, checking my email, checking my status, who can I call? It's really a reflection of the condition of our heart before him. But I believe that the truest indication of where our heart is before the Lord is our response to his word, our desire for his word. How bored we are with the word of God. Or when we read just one passage of scripture, is our heart tenderized? Can our heart actually perceive the revelation of Jesus with what we read? Or more is it, and I have a bill falling out of my Bible. Bless the Lord. <laughs> but really, is it, are we perceiving who he is? Or are we more just actually reading words upon a page that are not life-giving to us? The indication of our heart before him is the amount of life in the place of reading the word and our desire for the word. Yeah, so Alan Hood actually says that the, the only appropriate response is night and day worship, pray, worship and prayer. And as you know, if you study actually Revelations even slightly through the first couple of chapters of it into chapter 4, is that it's extraordinary because they actually say that they continually cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it was actually Joseph Garland. He's actually the one that came on the scene with the revelation of this. He, he preached it probably in the early 90s. It was Joseph Garland that said, that they cry holy, 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 because every time that they look upon him, they see a different aspect of who he is, and there's a different dimension of his nature and his likeness that is revealed to them, and their only response is to cry holy. Because they're seeing a, a, a dimension of Christ that they've never seen before. And see, that's the place when we read the word in the place of worship and prayer that we should actually be beholding and partaking and encountering who he is so that our heart is fascinated over and over and over again. So Luke eleven five, after Jesus gives them this instruction and he says, this is how you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He goes on and he gives them a parable. Now let's just give really clear attention to this parable. It's not like one parable of many about prayer. 
He says, this is how you pray, and then he gives a parable. So this is very foundational as far as in the instruction of prayer. And this is the parable in verse 5. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has come to me in his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I I cannot rise and give to you. Verse 8, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Now, clearly, what we first need to understand is the man that's coming and knocking on the door doesn't even need bread. If you read this parable, he's actually coming and knocking on the door on behalf of somebody else. He himself does not need bread. So what we need to understand is there's three characters in this parable. Number one, there's the man that's coming knocking. He himself is not saying, I need bread for myself. I'm asking you for myself, will you rise and give me bread? He's saying, I had a friend come to me. He was in need. I don't have what he needs. So here I am at midnight knocking on your door. And he's asking for someone else to provide bread for his, for his friend's need. Number one, really what this speaks to is the place of urgent need. There was the urgent need of a friend that he was responding to. He saw need, and instead of turning away from it or denying it or looking away from it, he actually rose up from his bed, he forsook his own comfort and his own night's rest, and he actually troubled himself on behalf of his friend. He went to to trouble on behalf of another individual. Which is, I mean, is extraordinary to me because, to be honest, all my growing up years reading this parable, I always thought he was coming for bread for himself. It changes the story greatly because, let's just be honest, he would have been justified in saying to his friend, I'm sorry, I don't have bread. I have nothing to give you. But he actually went beyond the fact that he didn't have what he needed. And he said, I don't have what you need, but I know where to find it. I will go get what you need for you. That is extraordinary because although he didn't have it in and of himself, he was willing to go the extra mile and provide for his friend. So like I said, as a child, I always thought he was asking for bread, but it took on completely new significance when I realized he was asking on behalf of someone else. Now, this is Jesus giving the instruction, this is how you are to pray. He's saying, you're to come to me on behalf of those in need. And let's just get the story straight. You don't have what they need. (laughs) You in and of yourself do not have the bread that is necessary. We don't have in and of ourselves what Cambridge needs. We don't have in and of ourselves what Harvard, MIT, BU, BC, Simmons, the multitude of students that are gathered in this place. Nobody has what they need. There's one. There is one man who has what they need. And guess what our posture is? Our posture isn't to somehow fabricate ourselves, make ourselves look better. Well, I don't have bread, but I can give you something else. I don't have bread, but I can provide you this. I don't have bread, but I can give you somehow to alleviate the need without actually providing what is being longing and desiring and angsting for. It is bread. And oftentimes what we've done is said, I don't have bread, but I will give you a substitute. You know, I've done many, many years in compassion ministry. 
and we feed, we clothe, we do all of the practicals. But that is the one thing I have always said before the Lord, is I never want practical, even means of supplying to be a substitute for your presence. Because at the end of the day, the poor can get a new shirt, they can get a new pair of pants, but if they are given the presence of God, the life-changing presence of God, it changes everything. They're not just warm for a night. Their entire future and destiny is changed. And the same is true for the mass amount of population of lost, dying, depressed, drug-addicted, sex-addicted people throughout this entire region. It is Jesus Christ alone. Our program ain't going to save them. Our organizational structure ain't going to save them. No amount of social activity will feed you, will do it, will make you feel good, will do it walking through the self-help. They need Jesus. Amen. They need bread that comes from one man and one man alone. And that is the story of this parable. It's, it's giving us foundationally, he's starting out by saying, you don't have it. You're going to have to rise up at midnight. Number one, you're going to have to be slightly inconvenienced. Get out from the warmth of your bed. Trouble yourself a little. It may not come easy or convenient. It didn't even come the first time that he knocked. It didn't come the first time that he asked. Honestly, God is a good God. He desires to give good gifts. If his children ask him for bread, he will not give them a stone. That is the word of God, and that is his nature. But more what he is speaking to is he's speaking, he even addresses this place of persistence. Though he did not rise and give to him because he was his friend, Yet because of his perseverance, you have to understand on the front end, he is saying in the place of prayer, you have to be persistent. He's saying on the front end, I love, I love, I love about Jesus, that he doesn't give you like a romanticized view of what it's all going to be. Just pray once and it's all going to just happen for you. He never presents like a life of ease or safety or security. I love how Jesus on the front end, it's kind of like count the cost. The way is narrow. When you actually study the narrow way, like he lays it out there. I love, you know, let's just be honest. As Christians, we're all like, Jesus, like your life will be happy. Like, oh, you'll be prosperous. You'll get the best jobs, the highest pay, the coolest house. It's all going to happen, Jesus. And we're kind of like, oh my gosh, maybe like once they accept Jesus, they get hooked. They'll be willing to go through trial, tribulation, and difficulty. But somehow we don't present it on the front end of just saying, Jesus doesn't guarantee it's going to be easy or nice or pretty. He just guarantees he'll be with you through it yeah. so you can make it. <laughs> That's really what it is. <laughs> As you can see, um, <clears throat> I don't really preach the prosperity gospel. <laughs> My life is prosperous because of Jesus, but he never promised you that it would be easy. Read book of Acts. Paul, huh? Brother did not have it easy. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. It was all for the sake of the gospel. That's what we need to get people signed on to. Sign up to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ no matter what. Because guess what? Your life is perishing and, and, and dying anyway. You might as well sow it into something that is worth losing your life for. Okay. So, Luke 11, 5 through 8 is our model of understanding prayer. This is our reality of what prayer is. So really what I want to focus on before we wrap up here is this this sense of impotence. That's exactly what it was. It was a sense that this friend that was going and asking, 
did not have what he what what it was needed to be provided for. Uh, Andrew Murray, this is another book I highly recommend. It's called The Ministry of Intercession. Wonderful short read, not long, but it is full of insight and wisdom. Andrew Murray says, A warning to the strong and the wise, and an encouragement for the weak. The sense of impotence is the soul of intercession. Really, that's even what, what the passage that we're reading here is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying recognizing need is at the very heart of intercession. You are never going to pray if you don't think you have any need. You're not going to pray for your own soul, and you ain't going to pray for nobody else's. It's only in the place of recognizing need. And see, we live so much in our society of like, you know, I'm all sufficient. You know, our humanistic way of, you know, we have it somehow all together. I'm just going to exercise a little more. I'm just going to, which I am. I'm going to exercise a little more. <laughs> but that, as a part of Jesus, doesn't profit anything. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, we're doing the transformation program. I highly recommend it. <laughs> um, No, but Andrew Murray, a warning to the strong and the wise and an encouragement for the weak. The sense of impotence is the soul of intercession. Mm -hmm. And I actually just want to take a a few minutes here and just even address our community of people. Is that the place, the soul of intercession is actually who we are. We're not here to start a church plant. We're not here to start a campus movement. We're not here to do any of those things. We have established ourselves here with that place of recognizing as a generation, as a geographical location, we are in desperate need of the move of the Holy Spirit. And really from that place. And so if you've wondered, I know I've had people come to me sometimes, they're like, so is J-Hop a campus ministry? Like, are you guys doing, you know, all of the, or is J-Hop this, or is J-Hop that? And I've even had people come that do not have degrees or have never been to university, or not educated, and they're kind of like, is this just for college students here? Like, am I welcome? And I love actually what Andrew Murray says about to the wise and to the weak, that this is a warning. And really for all of us, it's the understanding as Cambridge needs Jesus Christ. And from that place, if you have five degrees, that is extraordinary. And the Lord could use those degrees for his glory. But if you have no degrees, the gathering of people here, we feel as though the qualification before God is the the role in the place of surrendering to the spirit of intercession. That apart from that, and I'll kind of give you this analogy. Think about it this way. Is that if you have in a room, let's just pick up a country, a random country, anyone. (laughs) Where? Israel. Israel. If you have Israel... So, or any, and just so I'm saying for any of you to identify any country under the sun, if you have an individual that feels actually called to a people group to minister there, but they cannot speak the language, they do not know the dialect, they have no almost like training or ability in, in the natural, but they have a call from God and God wants to send them, commission them and use them in that place. And then in the same room, you have an individual that's taken four years of that particular language. A person that has studied their culture and their traditions and has insight and foresight. When you begin to have those two people in a room, the individual, if they have the background and the credibility and the knowledge and the Lord commissions them to go, obviously they go. But if we start to think, 
I've taken four years of that language. God could use me actually more effectively than you because I could preach to them very effectively. How about the place of dependency upon the Holy Spirit? That regardless of your training, your background, or your natural ability, when you are dependent upon the Spirit of God, do you even know that there's accounts of people that have gone to foreign lands, and when they step upon that land because they have gone in response to the Word of God, they have gone in obedience, they have supernaturally gotten that dialect or, or that language? That's the Holy Spirit. That's not being re- reliant upon humanistic ability or reason or... And I just want to say to every person in this place, as we're crying out for revival in the city of Cambridge, there is nothing that actually qualifies you that somehow God would use you in a certain sector of society. And there's nothing that actually disqualifies you. The very same person that thinks God's going to use me to, you know, radically turn upside down Harvard because I have so many Ivy League degrees. To be honest... Because of your pride and your lack of dependence upon the Holy Spirit, it probably just disqualified you. But the 18-year-old from Alabama that has no pride, no self-confidence, but has a place of abandonment, and they're crying out in intercession for the inbreak of the kingdom of God, in one moment, do you even recognize what the Lord could do? Study revivals of old. Entire cities come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need is the inbreak of the Holy Spirit, not a humanistic kind of formulation of this is how God will will, will move. And this is how we'll see revival in our generation because we've done it right, we've prepared ourselves, we've gone the way of a... It's the place of abandon. And that's actually what we see from this model of the place of intercession is we are in need. We are in need of His Spirit, we are in need of His presence... And oftentimes our actual abilities, when we begin to become confident in that, actually disqualify us from being used. This is the extraordinary thing. Look at the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus, let's just be honest, according to American standards, he wasn't so successful. I mean, the guy was crucified. You know, and it's true. That, that's exactly why the disciples couldn't even receive what was happening, is because they had an ideological view that he was going to be the conquering king. That he was going to come with so much strength and influence and all of that. We, even from ministry standards, at his death, he only had a handful of followers that were still with him. There wasn't a mass crusade of people that pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ. So it looked like he failed in his mission. So by all humanistic and points of reason, Jesus failed. But if we actually... I guess I'll say gauge his life based upon fulfilling our purpose in God. Jesus fulfilled his purpose that God sent for him. He fulfilled his purpose. It may not have looked successful. He didn't own the biggest house. He didn't drive the fastest car. He lived his life in abandon. And he fulfilled the purpose of God for himself. For each and every single one of us that gather at J-Hop Boston that are a part of a house of prayer... If God calls you to corporate America, that is your place of grace and calling. And do it with everything within you. If God calls you to birth seven babies and be a mom, that is your place of grace and calling and do it with everything inside of you. If the Lord has said to you, get five degrees in these things, you better with every ounce of diligence as worship unto the Lord. 
Put your hand to do what he's called you to do. Me, on the other hand, I had plans, and at 12 years old, a prophet called me out and said, you have leadership upon your life that you could, in, in corporate America, be influential, but the Lord says it's for his house. And then I had this wrestle for the rest of my life of all these prophetic words. Every time I tried to go in a different direction, people would call me out of a crowd. <laughs> You're disobeying God. <laughs> um, but the Lord makes it clear. And so it's the place of fulfilling purpose. Let's just think about it. All of you, just take a moment. I don't want anybody to say anything out loud. But at the end of our life, really, for our gravestone, if it's written on for all the world to see, for all eternity, what we were known for, what we sowed our life to. Bethany Temple. She lived, ate McDonald's, died. I didn't eat McDonald's. <laughs> I'm just saying, your day in, your day out. So-and-so lived, got a 3,000 square foot house, died. So-and-so lived, went to two Ivy League colleges, died. All of those things are fine, and I pray the Lord blesses you with tremendous wealth, and you can finance the gospel being preached to the ends of the earth. But it's a place of fulfilling the purposes of God that speaks of success, that defines success in our life. It's the place of abandoning our life to the will of God. Most of us run around kind of, my great ambition is to get married. I just want to get married. I just want to find a spouse. And that's kind of like what everybody's driving after, looking for. You know, I even need students that are going to school, getting degrees. What do you want to do if you're great? Nothing really. I'm just hoping I find a spouse. Okay. <laughs> I mean, and honestly, we all know it. I mean, we could laugh about that scenario, but we all have that thing that we're kind of working toward. Kind of in our mind that to us, it, it signifies success. That we've made it, we've done it, I will be fulfilled then. Whereas Jesus' life, it was that he fulfilled the purpose of God. That for each and every single one of us, that at the end of our days, and hear me, I'm not saying that you have to be on your, your, your gravestone, that it's written that you birthed revival in China. Like, I'm not even saying that it has to be something of monumentous or historical scales. But you need to understand that when we give our life to the place of prayer, if we're actually in the place of prayer, understanding that that, that that is the supreme vocation, that before all else, yes, the house of prayer, but we are called to be, as individuals, a house of prayer. Do you know what that begins to look like? That begins to look like that even if you're a mom and you have three kids and you can barely get outside of your house because you're constantly do, you know, cooking meals and folding laundry. In the place of prayer, that begins to look like, I'm going to do a VBS for every child on this street. And it's going to be my goal to preach the gospel to all of the lost in my neighborhood. Because you get a vision of something greater. Something beyond. Listen, I love my son. I adore my son. He is amazing. But if I begin to put all of my energy, my effort, my consume my life, with Abram and what he'll be. Do you even understand that that unto me can lead to a dead end road? That when he leaves the house at 18, I'm like, okay, I fed him all organic, non-GMO. I, <laughs> I labored over my... But at the end of the day, if I begin to have a vision, my life's calling is not simply to steward his physical body. It's to raise up his spirit that he would be a young man baptized in fire, that he would know the word of God, that he would have boldness upon his tongue, that he would never con conform to the cultural norm of America, but that he would abandon his life to Jesus Christ. And whether that be Harvard or whether...
group. That he goes with everything within him to fulfill the purpose of God. That that is our singular passion. That is our singular call. That there is no higher calling in life. But if we're running from the next paycheck to the highest paying job to all of these things that can throw us all over the globe, when you begin to get a hold of what is the purpose of God for my life? It could even be, regardless, the Lord might launch you into another country next week, but is there a reality that he wants to release through your life? It could be in the area of technology. You could be the next Steve Jobs. You could, I mean, any of these things, you could bring a reality into the earth. But it comes from the place of obedience. It comes from the place of surrender. It comes from the place of yieldedness. And number one, it comes from the place being used for the purposes of God comes from the place of sowing our life in the place of prayer. I want to really wrap this up, although there's so many dimensions to prayer that we could go into. But I want to wrap this up in the sense of we're heading into 40 days. For those of you that don't know, you can go on the website to get the prophetic history because it's like three weeks long. But the long and the short is New England was intended as a land of awakening and missionary sending. It's the history. It's how it was covenanted. And we're not here praying for something that we dreamed up out of the sky. We're praying for the purpose of God for New England to come to pass. But you as individuals, even during these 40 days, my, my passion, my desire, my hope for these 40 days is that, yes, we would pray for a region. We would pray for New England, that we would pray for Cambridge. But more specifically, each and every single one of you, that you would begin to be ruined with a vision of the purpose of God for your life. The fullness of God. That at the end of your days, it wouldn't just be written up that you did something in vain or just something unto self that was completely carnal, but that there was a place that you were living unto something greater. A vision that God marked. Honestly, I just want to say to you, if the vision for your life, if you can accomplish it in your own strength, I highly, highly doubt that it's a God-sized dream. Because let's just be honest, even if it's the mom that's going to evangelize her neighborhood, I mean, in her own strength, she cannot see every single one of those families saved. She needs the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the Holy Spirit upon her life. So to dream beyond our own capabilities, to dream beyond our own resources, that we don't have the bread in our hand, but we go and we rise up at midnight and we knock and we ask and we believe for the release of that which God has spoken. So I just want us all to stand to our feet.